This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I looked over my right shoulder to the back of the plane where all the electronic equipment was, and dang, I looked back there and there was a great big open flame on top of their equipment. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Greg Soder, a pilot out of Utah. Greg is a longtime general aviation pilot who started flying when he was barely 20 years old. He learned in a Cherokee 140, and from there stepped up to recreational flying, business flying. He became a CFI at the request of his local flight school, and from there went on to earn his commercial certificate. He's a CFII, MEI, he's got over 3,000 hours, all of it in general aviation flying, in a variety of aircraft. Pipers, Cessnas, Light Twins, Asiris, Bonanzas, King Air. He's truly a general aviation pilot. I'm delighted to have him with us here today. Greg, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's a delight to be with you. I appreciate the request. I do want to warn our uh, listeners that this uh, particular incident does involve a fatality. And so, um, you know, we may deal with some sensitive subjects as we go on. So please be aware of that. Do you mind, Greg, sharing with us uh, the events of those days in that 172 and uh, tell us what happened? I'd be happy to. Thanks, Richard. A couple of years ago, in the spring of the year, I had been invited by a local high-tech company here in Utah to fly for them. They manufacture very sophisticated radar gear that has to be tested from the air. And they owned a couple of older, well-experienced, well-seasoned 172s, and basically what they Uh, have their pilots do is they had taken all the back seat equipment out the seats and so forth and stacked their gear in the back seat area, back seat and luggage area, and they would periodically have pilots go up and fly test tracks to test their radar, which had to be tested from the air. Hmm. Typically, they'd have a pilot left seat, of course, and one of their engineers, most typically a non-pilot, in the right seat, and we would go up and fly uh, track after track after track. Um, These were pretty challenging tracks. You have to keep the the position of the airplane uh, within dozens of feet, so that was a little bit challenging, but beyond that, they were just absolutely mindless. Well, one uh, morning in June, gorgeous, gorgeous late June morning, 
uh, I had been asked to go out and do one of these flights for them, so got out to the airport, uh, pre-flighted both planes since I didn't know which of the two I was going to be flying while I was waiting for the engineer and crew to get there, and uh, we ended up flying one of the planes, uh, got all the equipment uh, on the plane and hooked up and tested, ready to go, fueled the plane to full fuel, and got off the ground and headed down to a little place in the nearby mountains. Uh, Utah is generally a fairly mountainous area, and uh, we were assigned to go down probably, I don't know, 50, 60 miles away from the Spanish Fork Airport where we departed and to fly these tracks. You mentioned these tracks are very specific profiles in terms of altitudes and headings and uh, perhaps airspeeds even. And your whole job is to fly these as precisely as you can so that they can measure the accuracy of the radar on board. Is that is that what you're doing? That is exactly true. Drove me nuts. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a reasonably good pilot, but I had not been used to uh, you know, maintaining headings and position and so forth within dozens of feet. But they've got pretty sophisticated GPS gear there to, to show you where you need to be. And, yes, yeah, so very, very precise track. Got it. Interesting. Okay. We had been flying uh, first just uh, north-south tracks and then orbiting circular tracks. We'd been flying for, oh, I guess, uh, nearly two hours. And the engineer in the right seat said, Greg, we've got smoke in the cockpit. Mm. And that certainly caught my attention. I looked down between my legs, and uh, sure enough, there was smoke wafting up uh, under the seat between my feet and his feet. Mm. Now, I'm thinking through a 172, and down on the floor of a typical 172, there's nothing there that would create an electrical fire. There's no real wires that run underneath there, you know, to my knowledge. Is that correct? That is correct, and let me add to that. My first action that I remember taking was I reached over, and of course in a 172, going the speed we were going, you can open the windows easily enough, and it Mm -hmm. was a gorgeous summer day. So I opened my window on the left side and reached over and opened his window, and I also opened the little soup can vent. I call it the the Campbell's soup vent up at the wing root on my side, and that did a very effective job of evacuating the smoke. Mm. So uh, that that was the first thing, and I don't remember a time during this whole incident when smoke accumulated enough to create any visibility problems inside the cockpit. And now, at that time, were you able to discern, was it electrical smoke, was it engine-related smoke? You know, the difference between engine-related is usually black smoke, electrical is typically lighter-colored smoke. Any of that going through your mind? Were you able to isolate what the smoke was and where it was coming from? Absolutely. I, As soon as I had the venting issue dealt with, you know, that took me probably a second, two seconds, something like that, I looked over my right shoulder to the back of the airplane because there was nothing coming up around the firewall. But I looked over my right shoulder to the back of the plane where all the electronic equipment was, and... Uh, Dang, I looked back there and there was a great big open flame on top of their equipment. Wow. You could see that you could actually see the flame. Oh, it was probably six to eight inches high and maybe three to four inches in diameter, just burning away. Just burning away like a little campfire. At some point in time I had been taught if you have got an open flame in an airplane, first order of business is get that plane on the ground mm-hmm. right now. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. So that thought occurred to me, and, and this next part I'm a little embarrassed about. 
but uh, my first impression was to turn north and head back to the airport from which we had departed, which was probably, I don't know, 10 minutes away, something like that. And I had actually started the north turn, and then immediately I thought to myself, Soder, that is a bad idea. You could easily be a flaming torch by the time you got back to Spanish Fork to land this thing. So I abandoned that idea again in about a second and a half. Then my next uh, idea was that, well, I'm getting this plane on the ground, so I started looking around for an emergency landing spot. A couple of factors entered into that. Uh, we were in some uh, pretty uh, pretty significant foothills. I, I won't call them mountains. Back here, a mountain to us is you know, 10 or 12,000 feet high, but mm-hmm. these were pretty significant foothills, and as I looked around to find an emergency landing spot, I didn't see anything that I thought was appropriate. Looked left, looked right, nah, nah, nothing there, nothing there. Uh, of course, I still had power, no problem there. But because I couldn't spot a place that I thought was suitable, we had a, a, a two-lane highway immediately below us. It was Highway 89. And I had also always been taught that off-road are better options than on-road because uh, A, traffic, of course, and B, possible power lines. Well, I'd never had this experience, never had the choice or opportunity to decide, well, do I land on the road or do I land somewhere else? But given that there were no obvious places elsewhere, I decided, well, 89 it is. That's where I'm going, and I'll uh, take my chances. In retrospect, uh, I went back down to that spot. I've been at that site on several occasions since and have looked around and stood there and looked and said, well, Greg, you know, you could have landed there or you could have landed over there, could have landed here or there, and uh, that's Monday morning quarterbacking, I guess. But uh, in retrospect, there probably were some places I could have landed. It might have uh, you know, done some pretty serious damage to the plane, but not nearly as serious as what turned out to be the case. Yeah, the the great difference being you came back when you were at zero knots and 1G and all the hindsight available to you without the stress of being airborne and an open fire in your airplane. So a little different situation to assess all the factors that were in front of you in such a short period of time. Thank you, Richard. That was very generous of you. <laughs> well, you know, I do think it's a, a hallmark of aviation. One of the things that we've seen time and time again on this podcast is people like yourself come in and regardless of how well they handled it and the situation ended up, they'll go back and say, you know, what I could have done and what I should have done. And I think that's so admirable and such a powerful part of aviation that no matter how well we do or how we fly, we always go back and debrief ourselves to perfection. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've just continued to progress and become safer and safer in general aviation is that's a big part of our culture. Well, I agree. And uh, going back to being in the air with this open flame in the cockpit, after I decided that I was going to land on 89, I decided, well, I'm going to do a quick, quick little uh, mayday broadcast here. So I quickly dialed up 121.5 and did a mayday call announcing uh, our end number, the location, the fact that we had a fire on board, and that I was intending to do an emergency landing. It was extremely comforting to have some Southwest pilot respond immediately to my mayday call. I don't know who that guy was, but he's a brother, and I love him, and uh, I'll I'll thank him forever for uh, making that response. And uh, as I recall, he said he would 
Notify Center or Notify ATC. So as soon as that was over, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm done with radio. It's time to fly this airplane. I'm guessing that I was probably at about 1,500 AGL at that point in time. When you first noticed the flame or... You know, probably, I, I think I was at 2,000 when I first noticed the flame. Okay. And by the by the time I had uh, discovered what was going on, you know, started my turn that I aborted and uh, made the, the mayday call, I'm, and this is a guess, I, I wish I had better memory of the details of this, but I'm thinking I was at about 1,500, and assuming I would have descended at maybe 500 feet a minute, that gave me three minutes to deal with this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, you know, that in one sense, that's a long time. Now, did you go through an emergency descent profile at this point, or were you most comfortable just flying through your normal parameters and getting the airplane down as fast as you can? Talk us through the what was going through your mind there in terms of speed uh, versus airplane control and your descent. I wish, Richard, that I could give you a definitive answer on that, because from about that point, I have a I have a fairly specific memory of making the Mayday call. And from that point forward, the only memory that I have of this whole incident are probably a half a dozen of very brief little snaps that probably lasted, I don't know, half a second, a second, second and a half, something like that. I have one that sort of addresses the question that you just asked me. I'm kind of a checklist guy. I've got some buddies that tease the daylights out of me about, you know, being tied to a checklist in a 172. Uh, but, you know, that, that's the way I learned, and I still have that habit. One of my beliefs is that I probably went through a checklist. Knowing me, I probably went through a checklist, and given that I had three minutes to do it, I mean, how complicated is a checklist in a 172? Not very. Mm-hmm. The other thing that backs that up is that one of my next memories one of this is just a little snap memory is of my right hand with my finger on the flap lever. And the NTSB folks told me later that the flaps were fully extended when they examined the accident scene. And so that tells me, A, I'm happy that I probably was dealing with the checklist, and B, I'm happy I got the flaps down, but uh, did I go studiously through the, through the checklist? I don't know. Can't tell you. But you most likely deployed those flaps to enable you to put as much drag as you could on the airplane, get down quickly, and then eventually get as slow as you could for this for this uh, road landing. If I'm going to land anywhere other than a uh, you know three, four, five thousand foot runway, I'm, I'm going to want to land uh, at a pretty controlled airspeed so I can minimize the length of that rollout. And were you over the road at this point, or you were flying yourself to the road? When I decided that I was going to land on the road, my initial thought, I have a pretty specific memory of this, I thought, well, I'm going to descend, I'm headed north, so I'm going to land, there's a nice straight spot down there, I'm going to land on this road south to north, just basically do a descent and straight onto the road. But then I realized, now, Greg, you you got too much altitude here to do that, and uh, you don't want to waste this nice straight spot that I had seen. So I decided I would fly a right-hand pattern, and uh, just uh, I was essentially on downwind. I'd go downwind base and land final on the road, and uh, I thought, well, that, that's going to work out well, and I think that a, a pattern landing, if I have the time to do it, is probably a better idea than a straight-in with this you know, big 
hairy monster forward slip going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, is the fire beginning to grow, and is there heat generated in the cockpit? Are you smelling electrical smoke to paint that picture for us? I wish I knew. I still don't know for certain, and and this is embarrassing, but I still don't know for certain whether or not we had a fire extinguisher in that airplane. I would like to think that I told Gerald, the fellow the engineer in the right seat, to deal with the fire. I'm dealing with the airplane. You deal with that. The fact that after the impact, I am told that we had fuel leaking out of the tanks all over the place and that we had no fire tells me that Gerald was probably successful in getting the fire out somehow. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it, you know, maybe it snuffed itself out on impact. I, I don't know, but uh, in answer to your question, uh, was I feeling heat? Was the fire growing, etc.? I don't have a clue. That's not part of what I can retrieve on my uh, mental hard drive. Yeah, yeah, you were focused on flying the airplane and getting down. So, so there you are, you're, you're in your right pattern over the road and uh, pick it up from there. What, what happened then? Well, my next quick little impression, just about as fast as you can snap your fingers, was combined seeing a power line in front of me and mentally realizing that I was likely going to hit it and then as a part of that memory, I remember the sound of the impact. And it was like, think you, this, this impact sound was an interesting thing. Uh, you know how when you take a, a Pepsi can, uh, you've, you've uh, emptied the Pepsi can, and you kind of twist it and crushed it? Uh, the sound of the impact was like 500 Pepsi cans being crushed simultaneously, this, this great big thump. Mm. That was my next memory. And that's the impact of the electrical wire or the ground? No, that was the impact of our plane hitting the ground. The wire, when you, when you saw it, were you on base or were you on a sort of a straight into final at that point? I was on a very short final. Uh, you know, a, a, a power line is, what, 60 feet in the ground, right. 60 feet in the air, something like that. And uh, I saw the wire going immediately in front of me perpendicularly. Perpendicularly. Um, and the, uh, the, one of the guys from the sheriff's department, who is also a pilot, told me afterwards uh, he had gone down and kind of reviewed the scene and seen what wires were broken and what wires were skinned. And what appears to have happened is you hit the first wire that was perpendicular to the road. Then the point of impact wasn't for about 100 yards down the road. He said, I think what happened is that you were bobbling, trying to get the airplane back into control, and you must have had some success with that because you made it another 100 yards down the road. But then there was another power line on the right-hand side that was running parallel to the road, and the right wing apparently hit that, and that's what flipped me into the ground because there was damage on that particular power line. So I, I really hit two lines, the first one, you know, knocked me all skiwampus, and I was trying to get the plane settled down, and uh, that uh, put me over into the second line, which is what flipped us into the ground. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. 
you'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Were you able to determine how you hit that first power line? Was it with your wheels, uh, the fuselage, the wings? Uh, the, the nose, nose of the plane. There, there were marks on the nose. Okay. So you hit that, you, it becomes unstable. You're trying to wrestle control of this. You hit another set off the right side, and then, and then you impact the ground. Yeah, the second line just flipped us over, and we went into the ground almost straight nose in. Uh, straight in, or you were kind of on your back, or, or pretty much straight, almost a 90-degree angle? Uh, I was fairly close to a 90-degree angle. I've got a photo of the plane. The same sheriff's officer took some photos that he gave me later, and uh, it was uh, not straight and absolutely up and down, but with the top, the back of the airplane, tilted a little bit towards the ground. And what happened from there? Were you Were you knocked unconscious? My next memory... And I don't know, Richard, I don't know if this was a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes or how long it was after impact, but um, I have a a little memory of coming conscious and saying to myself, I got a big problem here. I don't know why, but I remember thinking to myself, can I wiggle my fingers? Nope. Can I wiggle my toes? Nope. And I thought, oh, man, I can barely breathe because I was hanging upside down against the uh, lap belt and the uh, diagonal shoulder harness had both of those on and I was hanging upside down and I could barely breathe and uh, had this little thought of man I can't move my fingers can't move my toes I am really really uncomfortable I can barely breathe I need to call for help I can't make a sound and then that memory ends the next one and I don't know how much later this one is um, but I remember hearing somebody crashing through the brush on uh, towards the left, and I heard him yelling to somebody else, get the Sawzall, I've got a Sawzall in my truck. And then I blanked. That fellow, by the way, ended up finding me. This was uh, maybe, I don't know, a month later by the time I, no, it was a couple of months later because I was in rehab for a couple of months. But he found me, came to my house one night, and he uh talked with me and my wife and said he had been driving by, saw the airplane there, stopped, got out, and he said it took him about 45 minutes to cut me out of the plane. Mm. But but I have no memory of any of that. He said I was carrying on a conversation with him, but I, I, I don't remember it at all. And you shared with us earlier that your passenger did not survive the impact. Do you have any knowledge of uh, what his injuries were? Basically, blunt head trauma. Mm-hmm. He was uh, physically a little bigger than I am, but uh, the NTSB report indicates that, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but Cessna was having a seat track issue yeah. Yeah. at the time, and, uh, and sure enough, his, uh, the, the impact and his weight uh, pulled the seat off the floor, and uh, he just went right into the panel and uh, you know, hit it so hard it just killed him instantly. Yeah. So he had on seat belt and shoulder harness, but the seat itself released, and then uh, he impacted the dash, and, and that's what caused his death. Yes, and I didn't learn about that until considerably later. I don't remember if it was the next week in the hospital or sometime uh, after that when I was in the rehab center, but because uh, I asked, you know, how, how Gerald was doing and was told that he did not survive the accident, then I learned those details a little bit later about the uh, the blunt blunt face trauma. What an event! 
So as you think back through that, Greg, what do you think about in terms of uh, your lessons learned and your mindset as a pilot now? Number one, I'm uh, grateful to, uh, you know, Heavenly Father that loves me and apparently decided I needed to be doing something else in my life. So I'm, I'm grateful that I survived it. I feel terrible that uh, I was the guy at the controls of an airplane in which a guy died. Really feel badly about that. I, I called uh, his wife. I had never met her before, but uh, that was bothersome, although fortunately that has not uh, created mental problems for me. I've, I've been able to deal with it okay. I think my CFI mode kicks in a little bit when I think about this whole thing and I say, well, okay, you know, interesting story and uh, um, so forth, but what, what do we take away from this? And my takeaways as a flight instructor and a pilot are, number one, I think we should take our emergency procedures practices more seriously. We've all done them, you know, a dozen or a hundred or two hundred times, and uh, don't know about you, but uh, in my situation, both as a pilot and as a CFI, they could get kind of routine and sort of perfunctory. I'm saying let's do emergency procedures. Let's do them seriously. Let's do them for real. Let's act like something serious has gone wrong, and whether or not we live is going to depend on how successfully we get that airplane on the ground and conduct our emergency drills accordingly. I think too many emergency practices are very rote and shouldn't be. Yeah. So there's one. Another is um, I would encourage, and I do encourage uh, uh, pilots with whom I fly, to maybe rethink their attitudes about in an emergency, am I going to go for a road or am I going to go off-road? Uh, roads are nice. They're almost always flat, and you can usually find a nice long straight spot on them that simulates a runway. And even if there's no traffic on there, on that road, um, I have <laughs> kind of become used to, uh, as I'm driving around, especially in rural areas, noticing how frequently power lines cross roads. And it is scary frequent. Uh, yeah. Sometimes when you're out driving, pay attention to that. And the, one of the big problems, of course, is from the ground, you can see a power line perfectly easily. you got a black line against a usually blue sky, and that's easy to see, but put yourself in the air on final trying to see a black power line against a black piece of asphalt. Can't do it. That really comes out of this scenario is that you are laser focused on that road because you had made a decision, off-road or on-road. No, I want to go on-road. There's a straightaway. You're focused on the airplane down while your passenger is likely dealing with the fire. And you don't see that power line until it's too late. Yep. And... That's very likely the situation that, that any of us would be in. Very difficult to, to discern those things in real time. And I'll tell you something else, Richard, is that uh, you know most of us think that we're Bob Hoover, and, uh, and, and we see that Bob Hoover or Richard McSpadden, and we see that uh, power line in front of us, and boy, we're a hero, and we're going to dive under it or, or uh, you know, pull up over it and so forth. Ha <laughs> ha, that's a fairy tale. Guess what, folks? We ain't Bob Hoover, and I don't think Bob Hoover would have been able to uh, avoid the power line when he first saw it, and it was, uh, you know, a few dozen yards ahead of him. That's not going to happen. So I think it's important to rethink uh, off-road off or on-road, and I'm not saying don't land on highways, but I'm saying give it some serious thought and uh, 
do a little analysis while you're still at 1500 AGL because you may be way better off landing in a bumpy, bumpy field that is not ideal because once you get that airplane in contact with the ground, you're going to start losing inertia. And uh, if and when you do finally have the bad news impact with something, chances are you're going to be going way, way slower than I was when I hit the ground. So rethink ground versus asphalt. Yeah, and I think it it also almost makes the point that um, if you decide asphalt or road, then identify the power line. There's likely one there. Look to the right, look to the left, make sure you can identify it and that it continues straight. And if you ever lose track of that, it's likely it's going to come across the road at you. And you make a very good point, Greg, that I read something on uh, Bold Methods uh, not too long ago. Great site. I love that site. Yeah, you and me both. Did you see the analysis they did on the uh, distance that you would need to dissipate the energy to survive an impact? I have not seen that, but I know that the numbers are surprisingly short. They really are short. And they were talking about how um, when you fly in light airplanes like we do at relatively slow speeds, you know, the whole trick is you just need to dissipate the energy. Your enemy is sudden impact and sudden stoppage. Your body can't survive that. And it's measured in a hundred or a couple hundred feet to dissipate that energy at the landing speeds that we normally fly at. And if you can do that, you're very likely to survive. Yep. Or maybe aim between two trees to where the fuselage will make it through and the wings won't. That's your friend. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's absolutely your friend. Another couple things stuck out of me that, uh, Greg, I thought you did well immediately, and that was you see that smoke in your cockpit, and you immediately reach up and pull that top vent and open the windows and get that acrid smoke moving out of the cockpit. Really important thing to do, and it sounds like something you did immediately with with, uh, very quick results. That was very uh, knee-jerk. I mean, I I didn't give that any thought, and I don't even know if the— Cessna list says to uh, to open them or open the windows or open the vent or one or the other or both, but it just it just made sense to me to uh, get the wind going out of that plane, and it's going to take the smoke with it. And it sounds like you used your passenger very well, so you've got this unusual scenario. You're surprised by it, and so immediately maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, and then take proper action. And so all through this scenario, right up until the point that you impacted the power lines, which you didn't see, you're maintaining aircraft control because the worst thing you could possibly do is get distracted, stall, spin. We know that's a scenario that happens in emergencies. Pilots get distracted handling their emergency and they don't fly the airplane. So you maintain aircraft control. You're analyzing this unusual situation with this electrical equipment in the back and realize I got a fire on board. I got to get down right now, which is the right reaction when you have a fire on board an airplane and then you start heading down to try to find your optimum landing spot. Make best use of available resources, and if that's a bright engineer, non-pilot, sitting in the right seat, he can deal with the fire as effectively as a licensed pilot can. Yeah. Wow. It's a, a tragic situation, and I'm sorry for you for the loss of your passenger and your friend there in the right seat. Oh, thank you. A couple of other items, if I may, that have crossed my mind is upgrade restraint systems. Uh, You know, there are all kinds of really great uh, aftermarket restraint systems on the market. And, uh, you know, maybe a good five-point harness or a four-point harness uh, would have spared me uh, 
smashed ankle, broken leg, decimated wrist, neck injuries, double vision, and yada, 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 all of that, and, and may have saved his life. So uh, maybe consider upgrading uh, the old seat belts, particularly in older aircraft. I think that's something that uh, aircraft owners ought to consider. Yeah, I owned a Super Cub for a while, and the first thing I did, or one of the first things, was get onto supercub.org and start communicating with smart people who'd owned them for a long time. And one of the first pieces of advice they gave me was check immediately to see if your Super Cub, if the seat belts are attached to the seat or if they're attached to the floor. Because if they're attached to the seat, the seat's going to go flying in, in mm-hmm. any kind of Super Cub accident, and that's going to cause you a lot of problems. You want to get that STC mod that attaches the belts to the floor and the frame of the airplane. And so I agree with you. And, you know, it's, it's one of the best things you can do safety-wise in your airplane is upgrade your restraint systems. I still cringe whenever I see people flying around without shoulder harnesses in older airplanes because they're not required that's such an easy and inexpensive fix and has tremendous safety benefits. So I agree with you on that restraint system upgrade. Absolutely. One more that I would like to mention, and again, I guess this is the CFI in me coming out that I have tried to do much better since that accident, is better passenger briefing on the ground before you even start the engine. Because, face it, most passengers are reasonably bright people, and they can become a resource if they know what to do. So I think better passenger briefing so that you can convert that asset in the right seat, whether pilot or non-pilot, to be a better asset because you've given them some instructions. I'm frankly not a guy that gives a 10- or 15-minute passenger briefing. I don't want to make it into a classroom lecture. But um, my habit sort of used to be... uh, you know, where your seatbelts is, how you get out of your seatbelt, this is how the door opens, no smoking, look for other traffic, and point it out to me, and ready, okay, let's go flying. I try to do a little better passenger briefing than that now to make that person a workable asset. I think that Gerald, evidence is that Gerald was a great asset in spite of uh, what may have been an inadequate briefing that I gave him that morning. But uh, turn your existing assets into better assets by giving them some instruction on what to do. Yeah, I agree with you on that. No matter how limited their experience is, you can usually figure out a way that they can help you in the cockpit, whether spotting traffic under normal circumstances or, you know, in an emergency, having them do, you know, small and minor tasks. And it also kind of distracts them from worrying too much about the situation. I do think that passenger briefing is a balance because on the one hand, we take people up flying, we want them to enjoy it, And we don't want to start planting seeds in their mind about things that could potentially go wrong and suddenly they go up with a lot of anxiety. You know, I share with you that can be a beneficial thing. I also think, yeah, there's a balance there on on how much you want to pre-brief them on. What do you you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. Balance is the key and don't scare the daylights out of your passengers, but don't neglect to turn them into an asset as well. And when you're dealing with an emergency, it's a pretty poor time to be giving a passenger some instruction on what you want him to do. Yeah. Did they ever figure out what was the fire in the back with that equipment? Yes, they did, Richard. It was faulty wiring on that equipment and created a dead short. The dead short uh, started some inappropriate wiring on fire. Uh, It was not fireproof wire, et cetera, et cetera. If a person looks at the 
NTSB. There's not much in the preliminary, but the the final NTSB report, uh, man, talk about a smoking gun. And uh, you know that I guess pun intended on mm. that one, but yeah. it was just bad electrical equipment back there. What year Cessna 172 were you in? I don't know. I'm guessing it was probably a uh, early 70s model. Okay. Like that. And when was the accident? It was on June 27th, 2013. And are you still flying? Oh, come on, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> that's Just that's like asking a drug addict <laughs> if he still likes heroin. <laughs> yes, I am. I lost my medical for a little over a year. Took me a good six months of that year to rehabilitate anyway, but I managed to get my medical back and went out literally days after that. Got in a 182. I was by myself, and I remember the previous evening, knowing that I was going flying the next morning for the first time in over a year, I thought to myself, Greg, you know, how are you going to feel about this tomorrow? Are you going to be scared? Are you going to be nervous? Uh, I thought, well, I don't know. But I do remember going out to the airport, pre-flighting the plane, getting in, starting up, getting a taxi clearance, and I was about halfway to the run-up area taxiing, and I stopped the plane and did this huge double fist pump and just literally screamed, Yahoo! I'm back! (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it was just such a joy, such a joy to get back in the air, and I have been uh, flying a lot since. I do a lot of civil air patrol work, uh, flying with uh, kind of corporate flying and uh, so forth and so on, do check rides and flight reviews, etc., and just up to my neck in it and love it. Glad to hear it. But uh, I'm I'm grateful that I survived. I'm sorry that Gerald didn't, uh, but I'm surely grateful for my association with aviation, and I really appreciate what uh, AOPA does. You've got it so wired in terms of doing the right things to help aviation and uh, particularly in the aspect of safety. So, Richard, thanks to you and your crew and uh, all at AOPA for what you do. Well, thank you for that, Greg. And uh, we're grateful to people like you that are willing to give your time. And I also note uh, for our listeners here, you're a donor to our foundation, which helps fund everything the Air Safety Institute does comes through donations to the foundation. So, Greg, thank you for that, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. I'm a fan. I am a fan, Richard. Carry on. A sobering edition of There I Was Today. There are few things scarier than open flame in an aircraft, and Greg does his best to deal with that situation and get the airplane down as quickly as he can. He shared some lessons learned with us that are food for thought for all of us to think through, and that's why we do these things, so we can put ourselves in these situations and think through it so that if something like that ever happens to us, it's not the first time that it's entered our mind, and we've pre-thought some reactions and some things we would do, and ideally, it helps us prepare for an event that hopefully never happens. Thanks for joining us on another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can, consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. 
If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.